17 through 34 of chapter 11, with a focus mainly on verses 23 to, to 32 or so. But first, chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, the apostle says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Then, beginning at verse 17 of chapter 11, having just transitioned from instruction about food sacrifice to idols and then head coverings, Paul now says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be, may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. We'll read that in connection with Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism as we continue to make our way through the basics of the uh, Christian faith, looking the last few weeks at the sacraments. It's our third week on the Lord's Supper, and so we'll try to uh, bring together some of the things that we've been looking at the last few weeks, even as we come to the table this afternoon. Lord's Day 30, on page 886, in the back of your hymnals, we'll read this together responsively. Question 80, how does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ 
which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Finally, uh, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No. That would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. In the last few weeks, we've uh, seen that the Lord's Supper is no mere memorial, but an actual communion with and a participation in the Lord Jesus. It is the greatest meal on earth because it is a foretaste of heaven, where we taste already now of the wedding banquet to come as the uh, crumbs, so to speak, of that messianic table fall down into the present. God nourishes our weak faith by relieving and renewing our souls with the life-giving power of the ascended Lord Jesus. That's what we've learned in in these last two weeks. The Lord's Supper is a a visible and and tangible proclamation of the gospel that, that speaks to all five of our senses. That's what we want to do this afternoon is is very simply remind ourselves as we come to the table what this meal is who it's for, and how we should come. I just want to amend slightly the points that are in your bulletin and replace them with those, what this meal is, who it's for, and how we should come. And first, what this meal is. So a bit of review from what we've heard the last few weeks, but if you look at Lord's Day 30, uh, there it says that the Lord's Supper declares to us, and then it lists two things for us. In fact, it repeats again. It it also declares to us. And the two things that it says declares to us are, uh, first, that our sins are forgiven through the one sacrifice of Christ. 
And then the second thing it says, it, it declares to us, is that we are grafted into Christ who is ascended now in heaven, and we truly do, by his spirit, commune with the ascended Lord Jesus. So first, that our, our sins are forgiven through the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. On this, Paul teaches in the passage we just read from 1 Corinthians, when he says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And Paul says that he means more than, than just that we are um, commemorating the fact that he died, but to proclaim his death is to proclaim what his death accomplished. Um, Calvin said it's to seal the efficacy of his death in our conscience. Um, efficacy meaning what it is that, that, that uh, his death produced. Our sins being atoned for. And Calvin said this meal has been appointed for this purpose that Christ may put us in mind of the benefit of his death and that we may recognize it before men. That's why he says many um, call it the Eucharist which simply means thanksgiving. In celebrating this meal, we are thanking God for what Christ's death accomplished. Uh, more than that, we're, we're proclaiming it. Uh, that word in verse 26 for, for proclaim is, is the Greek word that's often used in the New Testament for announcing or proclaiming the gospel, uh, preaching or proclaiming the word of God. And so in using this word, Paul associates what's happening in the Lord's Supper with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He associates what's happening at this table with the gospel content of his apostolic preaching. That's what's being proclaimed at the Lord's table. The good news, the, the, the euangelion of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. As our catechism puts it, it declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Christ which he accomplished on the cross. That the supper declares. Which is also implied by the fact that Paul calls the cup the cup of the new covenant in his blood. It's a reference back to Jeremiah 31, the passage that we heard this morning in our assurance of pardon, where remember that the central promise of that new covenant is I will forgive their iniquity and their sins. I will remember no more. Christ wants us to be assured of that in this meal, in the cup that is the sign and seal of the new covenant, that our sins are forgiven. Which is why it's so sad that the Roman Catholic Church has uh, turned the supper into a work, a, a continual sacrifice apart from which daily offered our sins are not forgiven. That's not what the supper is. It is not a re-sacrificing of the actual physical body and blood of Jesus. It's, it's pointing back to his one sacrifice once for all and saying it is finished. Your sins are paid for. I will forgive your iniquity and your sins I'll remember no more. That's the first thing declared to us in the supper. What is this meal? It's a meal to strengthen our faith by assuring us that Christ's death means our sins are forgiven. But second, as we've often said these last few weeks, it's, it's also more than that. 
It's not just a memorial where the, the truths of the gospel are, are remembered intellectually or, or uh, simply proclaimed orally, but it is an actual enjoyment of that which the forgiveness of sins makes possible, communion with Christ. That's why we read also from 1 Corinthians 10, just to be reminded again that the supper is a communion or participation in the Lord Jesus. As we heard last week from Exodus 24 and Mark 14, it is the fulfillment of that meal on the mount where they saw God and they beheld him and they ate and drank with him. Christ is spiritually present in this meal, communicating himself to us by his spirit through faith. And so more than just having the truths of the gospel declared to our minds, we enjoy that actual communion that 1 Corinthians 10 speaks of. As we confess, in question answer 8, the Spirit grafts us into Christ in heaven. Question answer 76, through the Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to his blessed body. And though he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. There is actual communion and participation taking place. The supper is, yes, a a declaration of God's forgiveness, but it's also an enjoyment of what that forgiveness makes possible, union and communion with Christ. This is what this meal is and why we love to partake of it. Which leads then to the second thing that we want to consider. That's who ought to partake of it. Who is this meal for? Well, this question, I direct your attention to question answer 81, where a sort of three-part answer is given to that question. Uh, first, it's for weak and needy sinners who believe in the good news of Christ's atoning death. Um, second, it's for weak and needy sinners who need their faith more and more to be strengthened. And third, it's for weak and needy sinners who by God's grace truly desire to put their sin to death. Let's think about those one by one. First, weak and needy sinners who believe the good news of Christ's atoning death. That's what we confess when we say in question 81, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. This relates to what we said a moment ago about what the supper is. It is a a declaration that we are sinners who needed someone to die in our place. If in partaking we are proclaiming the efficacy of Christ's death and our need of it, then we're admitting that we are weak and needy sinners, displeased with ourselves because of our sin, who need the blood of the Lamb to take our sin away. Remember last week, we we talked about the Passover background to the supper, where the Israelites in Exodus 12, they had to take the blood of the lamb who died in their place and and, uh, paste it or sprinkle it on the doorposts of their homes, confessing, as it were, uh, this lamb has died in our place. Uh, We needed someone to take our judgment so that death did not strike our home. And as the the Passover is fulfilled and taken up in the supper, which the gospel writers make clear, and Paul does also in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, as the the Passover is fulfilled and taken up in the supper, so we are proclaiming uh, this lamb, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, had to die in my place 
and take the judgment I deserve. Just as they were proclaiming that then at that first Passover, this lamb has died in my place to take the judgment that is rightfully mine, so we are proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has died in my place and borne the judgment that I deserve. That's what we're confessing as we proclaim the Lord's death in coming to his table. We are personally appropriating it. Commenting on that first Lord's Supper in the upper room, John Stott said, If in the upper room Jesus Christ was giving a drama of his death, then we have to observe what form the drama took. Not of one actor on a stage with a dozen in the crowd, but it involved them as well. They were not just spectators of the drama of the cross, but they were participants in it and can hardly have missed the message just as it wasn't enough for bread to be broken and wine to be poured, but they had to eat and drink it. So it is not enough for him to die, but they must personally appropriate the benefits of his death. The eating and drinking were and still are an active parable of receiving Christ as our crucified Savior and feeding on him by faith. Confessing that we are weak and needy sinners who needed him to die for us. Who needed that blood of the covenant of verse 25 that our sins might be forgiven. The Lord's Supper is for weak and needy sinners who believe the good news of Christ's atoning death. Second, it's for weak and needy sinners who need their faith more and more to be strengthened. That's what it says towards the end of of that first long paragraph in question 81, who also desire more and more for their faith to be strengthened. Which is, you understand, an admission of, of the need for more strength. It is an admission of weakness. That we are those who need our faith to be made more strong. Remember how the the Belgian Confession, Article 33, defines and and introduces the sacraments. It says in that, that opening sentence that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained these sacraments for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace toward us, and to nourish and sustain our faith. The very reason we have this meal is because our faith is weak and our good God, mindful of that, wants to strengthen it. And so who is the supper for? It's for those who recognize their weakness. It's not for those who who pull up their bootstraps and come in their own strength. It's not for those who insist that their faith is, is strong enough or, or think that they have qualified themselves to come to the table. But as, as Calvin said, this sacred feast is medicine for the sick, comfort for the sinner, and bounty for the poor. While to the healthy, righteous, and rich, if any such could be found, it would be of no value. The best and only worthiness we can bring to God is to offer him our own vileness and unworthiness that his mercy may make us worthy. You hear what what Calvin is saying? That the most basic qualification for coming to the table worthily is understanding that you are not worthy, but are a weak and needy sinner in need of God's grace. That's why Christ had to die. And why you need that death to be proclaimed to you often, to all five senses. You come to the table to have your weak faith strengthened. 
The Lord suffers for those who recognize their need to have their weak faith strengthened more and more by our good God who is mindful of our weakness. And then also it's for weak and needy sinners who by the grace of God truly desire to put their sins to death. We must recognize our need for Christ's atoning death, must recognize our our weakness and need to be strengthened, and must desire more and more, as we have our faith strengthened, to then lead a better life. It says at the end of question 81, it's saying that we must hate our sins. Saying that the table is yes for, for sinners. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, but it's for sinners who hate their sin. As we confess in Lord's Day 33 in, in just a few weeks, are genuinely sorry for it and more and more run away from it. This is what Paul is dealing with in, in the church in Corinth. The need to examine ourselves and not drink of the cup in an unworthy manner. These verses here in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, Calvin says some uh, restrict Paul's instructions uh, merely to the, the Corinthians and that particular abuse that had crept in among them, of the disunity between the rich and the poor. But Calvin says, I am of the opinion that Paul, according to his usual manner, is, is here passing on from the particular to a more general statement. And that he here takes this situation of what's going on in Corinth to speak of every kind of faulty reception of the supper. To eat unworthily is to pervert the pure and right use of it by our abuse of it. He points to the adulterer in 1 Corinthians 5 as an example. Where Paul says, with such a one you ought not to eat. Some fornicator or or perjurer or, or drunkard, Calvin says, intrudes himself without repentance and so receives the supper to his own destruction. Faith and repentance are the two things that you must bring. Not coming to the Lord's table in a careless or irreverent spirit, either uh, without faith or, as Hodge says, without the purpose of complying with the the engagements that we assume in coming to his table. Remember, we've said this often, that this meal is a, a covenant renewal where not only are we reminded of God's covenant promises to us, but we're also reminded of our covenant obligations to him. And so we must not come if we have no desire of living according to the terms of God's covenant. If we do not hate our sin, confess it, and truly repent of it. This is why we read the preparatory form. Not to say that no one with sin may come, for all of us are unworthy sinners, but, but that those engaging in the following sins without repentance, and then are, are formless, idolatry, witchcraft, those who, who despise God and his word, those who seek to cause discord, factions, and dissension of the church or state, all murderers and contentious people, all adulterers, fornicators, and, and their modern equivalents, all drunkards, thieves, contentious people, and uh, who, people who live offensive lives. And all who continue in such sins without repentance shall abstain from coming to the table of our Lord. The Westminster Larger Catechism says those who are found to be ignorant or scandalous shall not partake of the sacrament until they manifest reformation in their lives. That's the same thing our form says. 
The same thing, Lord's Day 30 says, those who desire to lead a godly life and are not hypocrites and unrepentant, who show by what they profess and how they live, they're unbelieving and ungodly. For them to come would dishonor God's covenant and bring his holy displeasure upon his church. That's, that's why we read the preparatory form. Again, not to discourage those believers with contrite hearts as if no one may come unless they're without sin. It's not a warning for the timid and doubting, but for the careless and profane, hypocrites and unbelievers, or those who by refusing to confess their sins will not admit that they are weak and needy sinners in need of God's grace. Is that you? As Job says in Job 31, concealing transgressions and hiding iniquity in your heart, refusing to confess it because of fear of what others will think, so so that you'd rather continue in habitual, unrepentant sin against God than confess it. That's what Lord's Day 30 has in mind. Do not profane the table, but recognize the obligations it places upon you of both faith and repentance and committing yourself to live according to God's word. This really spills over into our last point about how we should come. This meal is not for. It's not for those who will not repent of their sins. It's not for hypocrites. It's not for unbelievers or those engaging in such sins without repentance. Our form says such people should abstain from coming to the table of our Lord. And yet I certainly don't want to end there. That's why I've modified the point. I don't want to end on the negative of who should not come, but on the positive of how we should come. Recognizing our sins and our need for the blood of the Lamb proclaiming his death as sufficient for our weakness, desiring more and more to be strengthened as we come to his table and desiring by the grace we there receive to be strengthened in leading a godly life. The call to self-examination is not a call to be perfect, but to recognize our imperfection. It's not a call to be strong in ourselves, but to recognize our weakness. Not a call to be worthy in ourselves, but to recognize our unworthiness. Again, to quote Calvin, this this is what it means to come worthily, to offer our vileness and, so to speak, our unworthiness to him so that his mercy might make us worthy. To despair in ourselves that we may be comforted in him. To abase ourselves that we may be lifted up by him. And to accuse ourselves that we might be justified by him. The worthiness that is commanded by God consists chiefly in faith, which places all things in Christ and nothing in ourselves, and in love, which though imperfect is enough to offer God that he might increase it. The sacrament is not for the perfect, but for the weak and feeble, to awaken, arouse, stimulate, and exercise the feeling of faith and love and to correct the defect in both. And so the way that we come is empty-handed, looking only to Christ in faith and repentance, feasting on his grace, taking hold of his merits, proclaiming his death as all-sufficient for sin and enjoying that sweet union and communion with him that is only for those who despair of themselves and look to him for everything. 
We come this afternoon not trusting in our own worthiness, but in his. It acknowledging our need for it as weak and needy sinners who look to him for grace. As you prepare to come to the table, the question is not, am I without sin? For none of us are. But have I acknowledged that sin in faith and repentance? Am I displeased with myself because of my sin, truly hating it and running away from it? And do I desire to have my faith in the atoning work of my crucified and now risen and descended Savior strengthened as I come to his table in faith, saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That, beloved, is the posture of a worthy recipient of Christ's body and blood. May he grant that posture to us for Jesus' sake. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to the table of your Son, pray that you would help us to hate our sin, to recognize that Christ has come to pay for such sin, and to seek at his table medicine for the sick, comfort for the sinner, and bounty for the poor. Do not mistake this self-examination for, for torturing our consciences, but examining them to see whether true faith and repentance do live in us. Help us to do that as often as we come to this table, and thereby to be strengthened in our assurance of the gospel and in our hatred of our sin. Lord, we thank you that mindful of our weakness, you give us this meal and pray that you'd help us now to partake of it worthily by recognizing our unworthiness before you, that you would more and more assure us of the efficacy of Christ's atoning death and make us to enjoy more and more that union and communion with him that his death, resurrection, and ascension have made possible. All this we pray in Jesus' name.